Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, Well, a real confession, I guess. This seems like we're kind of building the plane as we're flying it tonight for some reason, but I've got my sermon written down here, so I know I will be very precise with the things that I'm going to say to you uh, regarding calling. However, thinking about some of these thoughts, there's a couple passages in the book of Corinthians that I've always been drawn to for whatever reason, but there's a set of texts where Paul says, now, I say this to you, not the Lord. And I've always found that to be fascinating within our sacred text. We have uh, Paul giving a caveat for some of the things he is about to say, which are things from him, not from the Lord. Then he also specifies, now these things that I'm about to say, they're actually from the Lord. It's really interesting when you think about your views of the Bible and what, uh, what's entailed there to see Paul bring those two differences into, into play. But for whatever it's worth, Every week when I stand up here, I'm giving you the best interpretation that I can of God's word. I'm giving you the best that I, I believe that the Spirit is leading me to share with you. But this week, for, for whatever reason, it really feels like these are my words to you, not the Lord's, uh, for whatever that's worth. I did make a joke earlier this week that the title of this talk should be On Calling a love letter to college students and anyone else, which is most of us probably, who are trying to figure out what in the world we are doing with our lives. There's a few reasons why I wanted to address this issue of calling. First, I know that many of our college students that are, uh, that are here tonight, they're now standing where many of us have stood before. You are only a few weeks away from college graduation, and you are beginning to experience the grave reality of impending loan repayment plans, determining job prospects or lack thereof, weighing grad school acceptances, or perhaps not allowing the rejections to identify and characterize you. You're deciding whether to move back home with your family or to move back across the bridge or to stick it out here and contribute to the ongoing development of one of the greatest towns on the Eastern seaboard, (laughs) Salisbury, Maryland. I would encourage many of you to consider staying if you have found a love in your, in your church family, that's a reason for you to put down roots here. I'll say that. Some of you are thinking about marriage. Others of you are thinking about signing up for online dating. Adding to the difficulties of these decisions, this is specifically for the college students, although I think that there's so much overlap with this talk and with people that are past their college experience. Um, Every May, perhaps, we might be able to listen to some of these graduation-themed talks to remind ourselves what we are doing and where we are going and how God has a plan in that. But adding to the difficulty specifically for college students and the decisions that you're attempting to make this time of year, specifically the last few weeks of what might be your final semester in college, it's filled with the tension of treasuring the end of your college experience and saying goodbye to some of the best friends that you will ever make. Now that phrase right there is true for a lot of people. It's definitely not true for me. I used to come home every weekend. I went to school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I would drive home every weekend to see my high school friends. It was like a time lapse where we didn't really uh, progress in our life, and we just went back and hung out in my buddy's driveway and just talked for hours about what we were going to do that night, and then at the end of the night, we would just go home having done nothing (laughs) at all. 
Um, but for others of you, you're attempting to enjoy every last moment. I can demonstrate to you how I don't know much about the SU experience here. I've written every last trip that you make to commons. Okay, that's that's a thing. All right, that's good. Um, Every last practice or game, every last late night conversation, every last campus ministry meeting, and also continuing to study and to work hard so that you can finish strong. There's a tension there at the end of this time. and, And most notably, it's a strange time for a lot of people. The decisions that you have already made or the decisions that you are about to make, they seem weightier now than they ever have before. For some of you, choosing a college was a big decision, but it probably felt different than it does now. As one of the students recently described it to me, these are real life decisions. And many of you are feeling the weight that they bring. So it's natural for us to talk about calling, to talk about what is next in your life. Now, if I was one of uh, your classmates, I would be one of those, potentially those students. You know who I'm talking about here, the ones that don't really feel any of this, the ones that have kind of been skipping through the year, knowing exactly what it is that they are going off to do, maybe even having known that for some amount of time. Now, this was my plan when I was leaving college. This was my plan pretty much from sophomore year of college on. I was going to go to seminary. I was going to do a two-year degree in three years just to spread it out, you know, allow myself some mobility. I had a job lined up in a church back home that would help me to build my resume and get some experience while I was still in school. I was actually a college minister for a period of time while I was doing that. After I would finish my master's degree, I was going to apply and to be accepted into a PhD program. And then once I had finished that, I would publish my dissertation to much fanfare and acclaim. And then I would take a tenure track position en route to becoming a full professor with an endowed chair at a prestigious Christian liberal arts college. That was my plan. No weighty existential issues for me to solve before college graduation. And to top it all off, I believed that this was my life's calling, divinely orchestrated by God himself. Now, I do have some experiences, I think, that have contributed to this part of my story. When I was in high school, I was very much a part of the Christian subculture. I went to private Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. There was 16 of us in my graduating class. We knew each other very well, too well, one might argue. But I did not really appreciate or love Jesus for most of my time in Christian school that I went to. I was involved in church. Um, My family was there every week, and if we weren't there, it just felt really strange. But for the most part, I was just going through the routine, trying to convince the teachers that I was okay, that there was nothing to worry about, that everything was fine. It wasn't until my senior year of high school when I had an experience that I can't really define. Uh, We were having a chapel. We had chapel every week. This was the the day that you wore your tie and you looked exceptionally uh, Christian-like. I remember the person that was speaking, it was in the beginning of our senior year, said something to the effect of, Do you want to make a difference? Do you want your life to change? Are you tired of doing the same old stuff? And at this time, like I wasn't, you know, involved in a life of hardcore drugs. There was nothing really too wrong with me. However, I became convinced that there was something bigger than me and something bigger than my plans and something bigger than just trying to be the best soccer and basketball and baseball player that I could be and trying to get the girls that I could get. There was something beyond that. And I remember at the end of this service, we pretty much finished every service with an altar call. 
uh, and we had those moments where the speaker would see those hands and whatever. But I remember going up front to the altar that day in that service, and for some unknown reason to me, just weeping. At the time, that wasn't really strange for me. I am the type of guy that if I see a really moving commercial, there's McDonald's ran a series of ads with Kobe Bryant a few years ago, and this little kid came out onto the basketball court and like said something really cute to Kobe Bryant. And I'm not a huge Kobe Bryant fan, but for some reason, like that was, that was moving to me. You know, my wife and I, we watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy and it's not weird for each week when one character dies, because somebody dies every week, uh, for us to you know, shed a tear and she'll look over and I have this thing where I try to keep all my emotions bottled up until it comes out like in this weird laugh, snort sort of thing. And I'm like, kind of, you know, nose all over the place. But I was at the altar just weeping, thinking that there was something more that was going on here. And having known the gospel my entire life, decided in, the, in that moment to really give myself over to Jesus. I didn't know what that looked like, but I was destined to try to figure it out. A few months later, uh, I'm going through the typical high school senior routine of trying to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to do with my life. And at the time, I had two acceptances to colleges. I really didn't know how to do it, and my school really didn't prepare me to think about college. But I was either going to go to Lancaster Bible College, which, spoiler alert, you already know that's where I went. It's the hub of progressive culture. Um, you know, it, it is part of the Amish uh, community. However, you know, it was, it's, it's quite progressive there. Um, it's not. We had to wear a uniform. We couldn't go to movies. Uh, some, we went to England for a, a trip one time, and Star Wars Episode Two came out, and we went to see it with some of our professors. People got kicked out of, off of sports teams for that. It was, it was a strange, uh, strange time. However, um, the other opportunity for me was to go to Eastern Nazarene College near Boston. I'm not Nazarene, but they wanted me to go play baseball and soccer there, and I thought that was pretty neat. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So we had this really weird moment in Christian high school called spiritual emphasis, either spiritual emphasis day or spiritual emphasis days, or we had spiritual emphasis week where we shut the whole school down for an entire week and just goofed off and played ridiculous games. I've told you this before, but I, I distinctly remember one of the games was you got with a partner and you had a banana, you tried to do gross stuff to the banana and then have the other person eat it. It just sounds weird. It's not spiritual at all, but one guy threw the banana up onto the ceiling of the gym and it fell back down and then somebody else ate it. I, I remember that. Um, but in a more spiritual moment of our spiritual emphasis experience, I was praying again at the altar, not crying this time, but saying something to the effect of, God, let me know what you want me to do. I've got these options. Even at that moment, I felt sort of compelled to, to pursue the ministry, but didn't know what I was doing. So I prayed a prayer that many adolescent people, maybe even a lot of adults pray, tell me the answer, show me the way, show up and, and, and let me know what's, what's going on here. And as I was mouthing those words and praying that prayer, the guy that was leading Spiritual Times this week, not the guy that was playing the gross games, but the guy that was like actually preaching that week, showed up, got down on a knee, whispered into my ear, Josh, ever since the first moment I've met you, which was like four days prior, I've, I've known that you are destined for full-time ministry. And I thought to myself, I guess I'm gonna go to Bible college. I'd still to this day, I don't know what to do with that. There was another experience later where the guy was uh, preaching in our aforementioned chapels and mid-sermon, he stopped and he looked over at me and said, Josh, 
I think that you're supposed to do something with your life. Weird talk, isn't it? Like mid-sermon, it's like I'll just be here and be like, Alex, let me tell you something. I mean, it's just strange for that to happen. I don't have anything, but you know, I'll, I'll let you know if the Lord speaks. <laughs> um, but I had these experiences that kind of put me on this trajectory towards doing this. Now, obviously, I'm not standing in front of you uh, sitting in the endowed chair at a prestigious Christian liberal arts college. And as I've mentioned to you many times before, I've always wrestled with any sort of calling to the ministry, any time of wearing that title of pastor, mainly because of my experiences and the people that were pastor to me. I don't feel like our, um, our characteristics, our personalities, they don't really seem to go together at all. I've especially wrestled with any sort of calling with regard to church starting. TRP started five years ago when Doug and I decided to plant this church or to start this church. But up until that point, I had failed every church planting assessment that I had taken. Every test that I had taken from denominations said, yeah, you probably shouldn't do this. The last one I remember, I was on the phone and the guy said, yeah, you know, your results there, uh, I don't know. These are like quotes. I mean... Maybe, but probably not. You know, that was, that was his insight uh, to me. I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. I don't really aspire to be that I'm terrible at self-promotion. These are the things that church planters 10 years ago were judged on. And I could list 50 or so deficiencies in my character and personality that make me unfit to do what I am doing. In a weird twist, I've always been really adept at listing my deficiencies. <laughs> but still, if you're anything like me, thinking about calling and hearing my path, it probably seems too easy. Some guy that I barely knew comes over to me and says, hey, you should pursue this plan, and I do, and I remain in the ballpark of what he's talking about, and I'm standing before you now as a pastor because of this experience that changed the trajectory of my life. Perhaps this is where you whip out the old, that's great, Josh, we're so happy for you. Because <laughs> that's not your story at all, but stick with me because my experience, it leads into the second reason why I wanted to talk about calling this evening. It seems like many of you are waiting for a similar experience, some sort of indication, some sort of confirmation, some sort of explicit divine leading and guiding, and maybe some of you will get it. Maybe I will be preaching one week and say, you know what, Alex, I do have something to say. Perhaps that will be some of your stories. But I myself have begun to believe that we are moving in the wrong direction when this is our expectation or even when it is our desire to want these sorts of experiences. To put it in fancy theological terms, I think many of us have subverted our primary calling and we have emphasized instead our secondary callings. Note the plural there. One scholar, Oz Guinness, states, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. That's a lot of words there, but listen again as I read it to you. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, 
and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism that's lived out as a response to his summons and service. That is beautiful. Our primary calling is to serve the Lord with everything that we have, and our primary calling is so broad, it encompasses our entire being, yet we want to know what we're supposed to do. We want to know what our career path should be. We want to know which school to attend, or where we should live, or who we should swipe right on. And we want God to tell us so that we can know what his plan is for our lives. And this is what we mean by calling. So by this designation, when we think about calling in this way, Katie and Danielle are called to be nurses. Molly and Jessica are called to be teachers. Tessa is called to be an artist. Marie is called to teach English to speakers of other languages. A lot of you are called to run a business. Some of you might be called to go to seminary, Lord willing, because it's a beautiful place, a life-changing place where you can learn so many beautiful truths about the kingdom and be involved in ministry, Tim. I'm, I'm not sure if that's your story, but we're all pulling for you, okay? I was, I was struck by the fact that as I was thinking through these and coming up with my examples, I have no idea what most of the men in this room are trying to do with their lives. Like, every one of my examples were women. I don't know if that means that the men need to step up a little bit, or I just need to have more coffee with you guys. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if that's my own problem or your own problem. But it's not just jobs that we talk about when we're called to do certain things. We talk with such specificity about many of the things that we are called to do beyond our vocations, like church attendance. We're called to go here or we're called to go there. We talk about calling in sense of serving in certain ministries. We talk about calling with regard to dating. Stick with me here and married folks, just humor me a bit because maybe you can buy into some of this uh, experience that I'm about to explain here. But if you have spent any amount of time in or around a church youth group or maybe even on a Christian campus ministry, chances are you have witnessed someone's calling being used as an excuse for a relationship gone bad. You know what I'm talking, it's the old, I think I'm called to be single right now, breakup move, which in practice usually becomes the old, I don't know about being single, that sounds like a bit much, but God is definitely calling me to break up with you. And just so you know, God might be calling me to date this other person over here. I've been talking to them, they're pretty cute, I don't know. It might even be sometime as early as next week. I haven't discerned it yet, but you know, she's really cute. And as they say, if I'm called to it, God will bring me through it. That's, that's sort of the, the idea that we have with regard to dating and calling. I may be way off here, but I don't think God is calling anybody to break up with anybody. I mean, not in some kind of overly spiritual sense. Stick with me here. If your person is a jerk, dump them. That seems like a move God would support. Likewise, if there isn't a great connection with the two of you or you aren't really suited for one another, just break it off. No sense in wasting anybody's time. If you find that you aren't ready for a commitment, just be single. None of this is a calling. It's just wise decision-making. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't pray about stuff, dating and otherwise. It's not to say that you shouldn't involve God. You absolutely should in every aspect of your life. But I think that we have begun to over-spiritualize certain things. While we're on this topic, here's what I think God is actually concerned about regarding 
your dating life? And I guess this is for a very specific audience here in the room, the people that are eligible for dating. God is concerned that you aren't being an idiot or treating people poorly. I wrote that down and I just read it out loud too. Just, just, so, just to make sure that I got it right. God doesn't want you to be an idiot and he doesn't want you to treat people poorly. Now hear this one as well. God also um, is concerned that you aren't trying to do stuff, and I have stuff in uh, italics here, that you aren't trying to do stuff that moves either of you away from your primary calling. That you aren't trying to be invested in a physical relationship that is moving you away from your primary calling. That everything we are and everything we do and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism that's lived out in response to God's summons and service. I know that's not what you're thinking when you're out with so-and-so and such-and-such. But perhaps when we think about calling in this broader uh, terms, we might begin to equate those things. God is also concerned that you aren't with someone who moves you away from that call either, someone who turns you into a worse version of yourself. But other than that, I think that there's a lot of freedom. There are a lot of people in this world who are worth getting to know. Dating advice. Have fun. Be open. Learn to laugh at yourself a bit. Don't put so much pressure on every coffee as your one chance to find your husband or your wife. And if you're dating someone and it's not working, don't use God as your scapegoat. Just be honest. Now this is the second dating rant I've been on in a month. I apologize to all of the married folks, but you can just say, I'm glad I'm not there anymore in, in commiseration with the folks that are in the midst of that. But in all of this, I think that we have misplaced calling and maybe demonstrated our own lack of trust that God is invested in us that God has created us with unique giftings and talents, that we have been endowed with the intellectual capacity to make decisions that actually honor God. We have cheapened all of this by wanting and maybe even by needing specific answers. Perhaps the plan for our life is so much more simple. Everyone in the room should hear these words. Mark Laberton says, the vocation of every Christian is to live as a follower of Jesus today. In every aspect of life, in small and large acts, with family, with neighbors, with enemies, we are to seek out the grace and truth of Jesus. This is our vocation. This is our calling today. He continues, in relation to this primary calling, all the rest is secondary. It matters, but not as much as this vocation. Gifts, context, challenges, personality, these affect how we embody or enact our following of Jesus. Such things have all kinds of impact on how we live out our imitation of Jesus, but they are not the call itself. Our calling, in other words, is to follow Jesus. For some of you, silence that inevitable voice that's saying, yeah, but I need to get a job. What am I supposed to do? Silence that response for a moment and just contemplate this. The vocation of every Christian is to live as a follower of Jesus today. Before we consider jobs, before we consider potential spouses, before we consider any big decisions that we have to make, here's this simple orienting question. How are we doing with our primary call? 
And again, this is not just for college students that are debating what is next. There's many people in this room that are having a next of their own, whatever that might be. For Kate and I, the next was whether to buy this house or not to buy this house. What are we going to do with our home and what are we not going to do with our home? Are we going to have a third kid or are we not going to have a third kid? That one's not really much of a discussion. She has shut that down, okay? <laughs> but I like to think that it's still somewhat of a discussion, although on most days it's all we can do to stay awake until about 8.15 where we just crash on the couch, one more child. It's like Jim Gaffigan has this bit about, you know, you've got five kids and I can tell you what it's like to have six kids. It's like you're drowning and someone throws you a baby. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For those of you that come from big families. It looks awesome. Parenthood looks awesome. The show, not like the reality of raising children. I'm gonna move on. <laughs> the Danish philosopher and theologian, and if that doesn't grab you where you're sitting, I don't know what intro will. <laughs> the Danish philosopher and theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, challenges us in a similar way in a quote that I have read to you countless times. It's one of my favorites because I think it really demonstrates the importance of what we're at here today. Commenting on Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Kierkegaard asks these questions. But what does this mean? What am I to do? What kind of striving is it of which it can be said that it seeks or desires the kingdom of God? Ought I to get a position corresponding to my abilities and powers in order to bring this about? No. You are first to seek the kingdom of God. Ought I then to give all my fortune to the poor? No, you are to seek first the kingdom of God. But does this then mean that in a sense there is nothing for me to do? Quite right, he says, there is in a sense nothing. In the very deepest sense, you are to make yourself nothing, to become nothing before God and learn to keep silent. And it is in this silence that you begin to seek what must come first the kingdom of God. As followers of Jesus, this is our primary calling, to love God with everything that we have, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to seek or strive for the kingdom of God. And maybe I'm just the weird one in the room, but I have found so much freedom in this. It matters little where we work, or where we live, or where we go to school. This is our calling, and it is one that should define our entire lives. There's something else that has provided me with freedom in this uh, arduous task of decision-making. It's the release of the notion that there is one plan, or one calling, or one decision that must be made. And sadly, I think this is a notion that is pervasive within the American church. So many people are paralyzed by fear because they feel that they have to make the one right decision. And I don't necessarily think that this is how it works. And remember the very introduction. These are just my thoughts here, and I think that God is leading uh, me to speak some of them, but let's just weigh them out here. I don't think that there is one thing for you. I don't think that there is one vocation for you. I don't think that there is one grad school for you. I don't think that there is one decision for you to make. Whether you go to this grad school or that grad school, God will meet you there and you can live out your primary calling. 
Whether you take this job or that job, God will meet you there and you can live out your primary calling. Even when things begin to unravel in your life and they will if they have not yet, God will meet you there and you can live out your primary calling. I believe that God guides us. I certainly believe that some decisions are better than other decisions, but I believe that wisdom is available for us in that process. I believe the Spirit can and will guide us, and I believe that God, through His Spirit, allows us to make wise decisions. Looking around the room right now, what I see is capable individuals that have been endowed with the intellectual ability to make good decisions that are pleasing to God, and in some situations, you might have a couple of different options available to you. God will be with you wherever you go, and you can live out your primary calling, whatever your decision is. This is good news because the Bible doesn't tell you what to do for a living. Despite those stories that you've heard of people playing Bible roulette, you familiar? God, just speak to me here and now, and you thumb through the Bible, and you stop, and then you put your finger down, and whatever it says there, it will be your answer. There are weird stories about people who are like, I've heard this one story in church about this guy who was deciding whether or not to move to California, and somehow he thumbed through the Bible and stopped and put his finger down, and the verse said something about heading out west. He's like, ah, the Lord is speaking to me. I don't know what to do with that, but I don't really think that that's how that goes, but the Bible doesn't tell you what career path you, you should follow. I do know that any version of Bible roulette that you play, and you're like wanting to be an anesthesiologist, it's not in there. You know, there's, there's no text that's going to be like, I could either be an anesthesiologist or a dentist. I don't know. Let's just play the game. Spin, spin the wheel. That's not going to show up there. The Bible doesn't tell you what school to go to. The Bible doesn't tell you where to live, even though there's some of those cute anecdotes. The Bible doesn't tell you who to swipe right on. The Bible is first and foremost a story of Jesus, a story of restoration, a story that he is declared to be king, a story that everything has changed because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it's a story that has the good news that we can become part of the new creation. When we accept Jesus and when we follow Jesus, we can live into that calling of bringing heaven to earth here and now. Now, the Bible does give you principles to follow that will allow you to make wise decisions along the way. Perhaps the most famous book in the Bible with regard to wisdom is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of the cultural wisdom of the day. Many of the um, bits of, of wisdom seem to be borrowed from Egyptian culture, which is really fascinating. The book begins with nine chapters of a theological introduction that is framing parents trying to train up their kids, specifically their young male children, to follow after lady wisdom, not to be seduced by the seductress dame folly. It's a beautiful story that poses everyone with this um, two paths that they can follow, whether they follow after wisdom because they will find life there, or whether they can give in to their desires and follow after this seductress woman and be led to their own demise. For some of us, we might have even memorized some of these pithy wisdom sayings in the book of Proverbs. I know that when I was in college, I was a baseball player, but I was a head case. Like, 
clinically defined head case. So when I was pitching and something wouldn't go my way, this would happen a lot. We were a terrible team. I'd give up a routine ground ball, go right in between the legs of the shortstop. It would be bad. So I would take my glove. I would like, I wouldn't throw it, but I would like visibly problemed as to what had just happened. Words would come from my mouth that should not have come from my mouth at the Amish Bible College that I went to. And this is the hub of progressive culture, but again, like I was kind of pushing some boundaries. So my coach came up to me and said, hey, you should memorize this proverb. A person without self-control is like a breached city, one with no walls. It's like, great. So the next game, I'm, I'm pitching, grounder up the middle, like should have been had, wasn't, and I'm just, person that without any walls lacks self-control, it's like a breach city, and it's bad news. Really strange situation for most people observing the games. But applying Proverbs isn't always so easy. It's not always so cut and dried. One of my favorite examples in the Bible, okay, Proverbs 26.4, don't answer fools according to their folly or you will become like them yourself. Hear that again. Do not answer fools according to their folly or you will become like them yourself. This should be our rule of thumb whenever we are online engaged in social media, especially for the 25 and up group. I, I think that most of the problems on social media stem with us, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna claim that for myself. But when you see somebody being ridiculous online, the proverb will tell you, don't answer fools according to their folly. This meme is not worth engaging. This bad political view is not worth stepping into and trying to have a, a decent conversation because it doesn't happen. It says, don't answer fools according to their folly or you will become like them yourself. Great, live by that. But when you keep reading in the book of Proverbs, the very next verse says this, answer fools according to their folly or they will deem themselves wise. Verse four, do not answer a fool according to their folly or you will become like them. Verse five, answer fools according to their folly or they will deem themselves wise. So when you're sitting at your keyboard, and something is, is ridiculous and it's unfolding right before you, you think to yourself, okay, well, let's take the Bible as its word. Do not answer fools according to their folly. But wait, the next verse says, answer them. I don't know what to do. <laughs> what Proverbs is getting at here, and I think this verse makes it so clear, it takes wisdom to apply wisdom. Wisdom is like this practical outworking of our um, spirit-led decision-making, and it takes wisdom for us to know how to engage in these conversations. Perhaps it might be a moment for you to send a direct message and say, hey, let's go grab coffee. The things that you're saying are making me feel uh, crazy. We should talk about that. Or maybe it's just one of those things where you just say, this person has been on this road for a long time. I've tried my best, and I'm just going to move on. But there's other moments and, and situations in your life where you have to employ wisdom to figure out what God is leading you to do. So here's the tie. Seniors, juniors, wherever you guys are in your college experience, as you sit here contemplating what in the world is next, new grads that have been out of school for a couple of years, as you sit here contemplating what in the world is next, Parents who have just sent out their last kid 
as you are sitting here thinking about what in the world is next for you. Folks, thinking through a new vocation or new situation or monumental decision, as you think about what is next, and I hope that you're getting some of this, wherever you are in your life, there's always something next and there's always a decision that needs to be made, but perhaps this will provide you with freedom. This is my main hope with all of this talk. God has you. Always has and always will. One of my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah says that he has you etched on the palms of his hands. He is invested in you. He cares for you. And we have been given a job to do, namely to be representatives of Jesus here on earth, to work for restoration and to bring about the kingdom, to bring heaven to earth, as we say oftentimes. We are to be a people who fight for reconciliation. And for some of you, that might mean that you have to pick up the phone and have a difficult conversation with the person that has alienated you. There's a text in the Bible uh, where it talks about when you have been wronged, you go and you have the conversation. So many of us sit back and we wait for the phone to ring because they've wronged us. And we'll reconcile when they make the first move, but textually, we are to go and to initiate that. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because we have been forgiven, we should be a people that fight for reconciliation. We should also be a people who care about the widows and the orphans in our community. And we don't even have to spiritualize that. We can take that as literally as it says in the text. Do we care about widows and orphans? We should be a people who sit with those in their darkest hours, not to give them sage advice because you don't have any, but to be with them and to provide an image of Jesus, to be people who are present. A good friend of mine who is probably one of the best pastors I ever knew said that the most important ministry that we have as ministers, and I would even extend that to you as followers of Jesus, is the ministry of presence, where you are just there. And you can be sitting there saying nothing, and that might be the thing that people remember. Your questions about jobs and houses and whatever else that we are concerned with, they are important. I do not want to diminish them. I have some of these questions myself that I have had for years, but let's allow the first things to be first. Let's busy ourselves with loving God and loving others. Let's be about the work of the kingdom. And in the meantime, I believe that God will meet us in those decisions I believe that wisdom is available for us. I believe that we have been empowered to make beautiful, sometimes risky decisions to follow the desires of our hearts as they align with God's own desires. And I believe that there is freedom in this pursuit. So wherever you are, whatever it is that you're dealing with and wrestling with and whatever it is that you feel is next and you do not know what to do, I would encourage you to take one step back and say, my primary calling is to be a follower of Jesus today. To love God with everything I have, to love my neighbors as myself, to, to strive to seek first the kingdom and to begin there. And I am convinced that God will meet you in the process. Alleviate yourselves of the notion that there is one right decision for you to make and remember that God goes with you wherever you go. He will meet you there. That you are etched on the palms of his hands and everything will be okay. Now, I, I pitched this to Tessa earlier today, and she said, yeah, that sounds nice. I don't know if it's gonna land. 
Because for some of you, even that notion of there's not one path for you to be on is a complete rethink of everything that you've ever heard. To which I said, well, I'm fine undoing that because I think that that's wrong. But what I want you to understand is that in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of your own doubts, even in the midst of you doubting yourself, God is present with you. He wants you to move with passion and boldness and he will go with you wherever you go. May that be something that uh, allows you to feel freedom and that allows you to chase after that first calling because that is of the utmost importance. Last thought, what would it look like if everyone in this room, myself included, became a person that could put the first things first? What story would that tell to the community around us? What image of Jesus would that provide to the community that has written him off because of their bad church experience, because of their bad experiences with authority and power, because of their bad experiences with prayer, because of their bad experiences with so many things? What would it look like for us to be a people that provided a different image of God because we put the first things first? May God empower us to do that with tenacity and with beauty in this community. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.